never dreamed that I would finally be, unfortunately at this particular state and time, to be the last fluent speaker it was never a goal of mine. There was a mess of us that all started learning language. There was a bunch of us that were getting underneath of this and learning culture and dance again. And I truly believe that there was gonna be about, in my generation, about 15 of us that were really gonna just take this, this, you know, from different families, just not just my family, but different families. And, and at some point I turned around, looked back and I realized I was alone. And then as that other generation, the people born around 1900, 1910, 1915, when they started passing away, I really felt it then. Welcome to Language Keepers, Emergence Magazine's six-part journey into the struggle for indigenous language survival in California. I'm Emmanuel Vaughn Lee, executive editor of Emergence Magazine located on the unceded ancestral lands of the Coast Miwok people of present-day Marin County. This podcast series is a continuation of Language Keepers, Emergence Magazine's award-winning multimedia story, where we explored the current state of four different indigenous California languages and how dedicated families and communities are facing the challenges of revitalizing some of the most vulnerable languages in the world. In 2019, our filmmaking team, led by director Adam Lofton, crisscrossed California, witnessing the language revitalization efforts of Tolawadene, Kuruk, Wukchumni, and Kawaiasu communities. This critical work is more important than ever, as the dwindling number of last remaining fluent speakers document and impart their cultural and traditional knowledge to the next generation of language keepers. Two hundred years ago, as many as 90 languages and 300 dialects were spoken in California. Today, only half of these languages remain. Losing a language means more than the disappearance of words. Speakers of the Talawadene, Kuruk, Wukchumni, and Kawaiasu languages, all of which are considered endangered, are increasingly rejecting predictions of language extinction. Instead, they are choosing to focus their efforts and energies on teaching the next generation, carrying forward the songs and stories of their ancestors, and ensuring that native languages do not fall silent. Throughout this episode, we'll be hearing from speakers of these four languages as they share their stories and perspectives. Join us as we examine the histories that brought us to this critical point, the struggle for indigenous cultural survival in America today, and the potential of language revitalization to bring healing to us all as we work to bridge the divides of indigenous and Western worldviews. Take a moment and imagine that you were the last known speaker of the English language. 
It is your sole responsibility to document every word, phrase, story, and song, and to explain every pronunciation, conjugation, and complicated set of rules. To make things even more daunting, you can't access the millions of books that store and document the English language in all its iterations throughout its history. No Webster's Dictionary or Encyclopedia Britannica. What you do have is the language and the stories that were shared with you orally from your parents and grandparents, and maybe some notes from a few anthropologists and linguists gathered from your ancestors. Now it's up to you to ensure that your language is preserved and passed on within your lifetime. This exercise in imagination is a reality for Lauren Metlajny Bomlin. At 64 years old, he is the sole fluent speaker of Tolowadaini, a language whose roots are thousands of years older than the oldest giant coastal redwoods of his ancestral home. Here's filmmaker Adam Lofton interviewing Lauren in his living room in Crescent City in Northern California. So could you start by introducing yourself, please? Sure. Dalaha, she took me last she took nearly chanting day nearly she he to nearly chanting hot um uh hot sustan num uh she to cha uh sasta so oh hello uh my name is Lauren Bomlin Lauren Metlashne Bomlin and uh, I uh, grew up at a place named Nili Chandan. So I'm a Nili Chandan Daini, uh, meaning I'm a citizen of that place. But now I live here at this place. Uh, it's called uh, the east side of Lake Earl, uh, this location. Within your introduction, how is that different than when we generally introduce ourselves in English? Well, uh, I think probably the biggest difference in that particular introduction is I just say where I'm a citizen of. Because most time you say, hi, hey, I'm from Crescent City, or I'm from Smith River, you know, whatever you say. But in the language, Dainit means that you're actually of that ground, the specific place on the earth, and you're from there. What do you think it offered your ancestors by sharing um, the specificity in that way? Well, I think in a general sense, the environment that you, we, I grew up in or lived in and live in now, there's a bond to that place. And it's a bond almost like as if you're a sibling. They're a sibling to you. So everything in that environment becomes very intimate to you. The shape of the bark of a tree, the way a tree forks, the way the root system plows into the earth and grows, or the way a shrub reaches for light and just the way the bugs are working, the way the birds are chirping, all that stuff is just a part of what you think about and experience on a day-to-day basis over and over and over throughout your lifetime. And so the place is very intimate in that way. And we're all interconnected and all interrelated. It's all interlaced into one, one gigantic entity. It's an identity in a way. So if you are gonna lose and give up on or for whatever reason not use and understand your language, you're gonna, a person's gonna miss out on the, well, I call it the knowledge since dream time. So humans emerged at some point out of the, you know, our past, our distant long ago past. And we've been bumbling around living, changing and moving on this planet since, ever since the beginning, really. 
our languages have brought that data, that information from that time to now. No one on this earth knows the oldest language in the world. It could be Dani, it could be English, it could be Japanese. We don't know the oldest language. Maybe the original language has gone and died and evolved into 10,000 other languages and died and became one, we don't know. But this understanding of the universe and how we relate to our universe is bound within your language because it forms a worldview. And if you're not gonna learn your language, you're not gonna look beyond just the everyday use of, you know, nouns and verbs, you know, which we do unconsciously as speakers, then you're gonna miss out on this, this like understanding of how the world fits together. It's a huge, magnificent puzzle that all locks back together and is described by your language or through the lens of your language. That is probably the most sad thing when people don't get to have that. They don't get to see it from that perspective. Southeast of the Talawa Nation, at the place where the Salmon and Klamath Rivers meet, is the ancestral home of the Karuk people, one of the largest tribes in California. In 1905, under the authority of the 1891 Forest Reserve Act, President Theodore Roosevelt claimed the entirety of the Karuk's aboriginal territory over one million acres. The territory, which had been under the care of the Karuk for thousands of years, was renamed the Klamath Forest Reserve and became federal public land. As soon as the land became open to the public, 117 historically recognized Karuk villages, along with their associated hunting, gathering, and fishing areas along the Klamath River, were stolen from the tribe. Many of these villages were subsequently homesteaded by non-native people or claimed for mining. As was the case within indigenous communities around the rest of the country, the Karak people were viewed by white settlers as a hindrance to progress, as an affront to Christian values, and as less than human. Ensuing genocide, forced assimilation, and decades of generational trauma severed the Karak from the river, their culture, and their language. In the 1970s, the Karuk tribe raised money to purchase two properties in the towns of Orleans and Happy Camp, two pieces of their traditional lands. In the years since, they have purchased and reclaimed 1,661 acres, less than 1% of their original Aboriginal territory. Karuk means upriver people. Today, living again alongside the waters of the Klamath River, Karak language speakers like Phil Albers are working to keep their words, traditions, and connections to the land alive. There's not a time in my life that I don't have memory of language. It always has been a part of who I am. From the time I was like 12, to like 20, I wanted to learn and I would ask questions and I would get nouns. Kedivkid, chair, amke, table, great. I have a little bit of vocabulary, but I could not actually speak. Naiki, Nenithui, Phil Albers, Na Kadukwa Arar, Panamnik Tenikri, 
program. So I said, hello, my name is Phil Albers. I'm a Kadik person. I live in Orleans. I have four children, much Ihan, Sasi, and Lucy. And um, I said, my sweetheart is Tara Lynn, and she's a Yurok Indian. And um, yeah, so that's, that's pretty much my basic introduction for the most part. And will you just share where we are right now? Um, yeah, well, right now we're in my home. Uh, and uh, it's right in my living room. So it's here in uh, northeastern Humboldt County, near Siskiyou County. We're a pretty small town. I think the population's like 600. Um, one gas station, one store. Usually both are closing at 6 p.m. Orleans today, it's called Orleans, um, but um, the closest or largest village reference would be Paramnik or Panamnik. That was an old Kudik village, a larger one that was um, considered a representative village for many of the smaller villages around the area. So I, I feel like no matter where I go within this Karuk ancestral territory, I'm from there. Learning Karuk language and trying to revitalize that is, to me, it's so different from learning Spanish or German or French some of the struggles and the real challenges there are that you you can't go somewhere and hear it. Even here in Orleans, I know a lady, I can go to her house and she will speak Mandarin to me. It's cool. I, I won't understand it and I don't really have any desire to learn it right now, um, but I could do that. And there is almost no place in the world I can go and have a fluent conversation with somebody. There are maybe five first language fluent speakers left. The whole world, this whole planet, and there's only five people left that can speak it without having any trouble. And some of them, they, they have trouble now because they don't have anybody to speak it freely with. There are tribes right now in California, all they have is audio and written documentation of the language. They can barely hear it on a tape. You know, that's a sad thing. That's definitely something I'd like to prevent. But if it does happen, I want as much of it as I have to be available on that tape. <laughs> The Karuk are not the only tribe with a handful of remaining fluent speakers working to document as much of their language as they can. The Yatip Valley in the Sierra Nevada foothills near Bakersfield in Southern California has been home to the Kawaiasu, or Nua, for at least 1,500 years. Though still unrecognized by the federal government, the Kawaiasu culture originated among the Tehachapi Mountains and as a southern Numic language of the Uto-Aztecan language family. Unlike many other California indigenous peoples, the Kawaiasu largely avoided the effects of colonization and the Christianization in the 17th and 18th centuries by Spain and Mexico. 
But in the mid-19th century, following the gold rush, American ranchers moved into the Kawaiasu homeland. Cattle overtook the meadows, and wetlands were drained to serve as hayfields. In 1853, the Kawaiasu were forcibly removed from their villages by the American government and relocated to the nearby Sebastian Indian Reservation at Tejon Pass, the first official Indian reservation in California. Edward Beale, superintendent of Indian Affairs for California, supported the relocation, stating that Native Americans were a barrier to rapid settlement of the state. They should leave their old homes in the mountains and settle elsewhere. Unable to pursue their traditional way of life, many Kawaiasu were reluctantly assimilated into white society, with some becoming indentured ranch hands in their ancestral homes. Lucille Garado Hicks was raised speaking Kawaiasu and is now one of the last remaining fluent speakers of her language. Um, can we start with you just introducing yourself and you can introduce yourself in the language, but you can also just introduce yourself in English. Well, I could do either, whatever you want. How about we do both, please? Okay. Lucille Garado Hicks. Nua Kawaiisu Paiute Nation. Nua a fluent speaker. My name is Lucille Gerardo Hicks. The name of my language is Kawaiisu, which is also known as Paiute Nation. Paiute is what my elders was known as, and as the years went on, it became Kawaiisu. The Nua part, that means the people, and that's what is my personal license plate on my car. It says Nua. So was your first language English? No. Native American was your first language. That's all I remember. That's all I remember in talking, you know, as growing up here in this area when I was little. And I was probably four that I can remember. And how many people around you were fluent at that time? Oh, my elders, I would say roughly 15, 20 that, that we were around. But there were others in the surrounding areas. There were other, other Native Americans that, that spoke our same language. As you're growing up, did you ever think that it was going away, going to sleep? As I was getting older and uh, speaking the language, I thought it was gonna be there forever. But seeing all these elders that I learned from gradually disappearing before our eyes. Knowing that's a fluent speaker, and that's one down, and they're not gonna be able to tell me that native story that they used to tell me, and like they used to tell me. I'm not gonna hear that no more. It really hits home when you lose your, your parents. That's, that's the ground to, to our language. When you lose your, your grandparents, that's, that's the root. 
seeing them die was like, like leaves falling off a tree. And all of a sudden, the tree is just bare. And you see only two little leaves up there. Who can you speak fluently with right now? Just my brother, my brother Luther and I, and that's it. Lucille and her brother Luther Garado Hicks hold a tremendous responsibility as the last fluent speakers of the Kawaiasu language. That same responsibility of keeping a language alive weighs heavily on Marie Wilcox, the sole remaining fluent speaker of the Wokchumni language. 3,000 years ago, the people who are known today as Wokchumni broke off from the Yokuts tribe and settled near the east fork of the Gawiha River, a river that now feeds the farmlands of Tulare County in central California. 86-year-old Marie Wilcox grew up speaking the Wokchumni language with her grandmother, but spent most of her life speaking English, working in the citrus groves, and raising her family. In her 60s, she felt compelled to return to her language, and with the help of her daughter, Jennifer Malone, Marie spent 20 years compiling the first ever Wokchumni Dictionary. Today, their family is embarking on a language revitalization project across four generations. My name is uh, Marie Wilcox. My grandmother delivered me Thanksgiving Day on November 24, 1933. <laughs> Grandpa and Grandma always spoke our language, Wokchumni. My grandma didn't speak much uh, English because uh, we all only spoke our language at home, and that's the way it should be right now. <laughs> but uh, we we got Americanized, so. <laughs> Mom is our last fluent speaker now since my dad's uncle, Felix Aicho, passed away. When he passed away, you know, it really soaked in that she's the last elder because all her brothers and sisters are gone and so she is the last one. Hedet Nim Milikanin Hayoish Jennifer Malone Nim Milikana Nim Inyanin Hayoish Hayalik Na Wakchamni Tachi Yo Yalapni. My name is Jennifer Malone. I'm from Woodlake, California. When I was growing up, I spoke English. I don't remember hearing mom speaking the Wakchumni language. Mom worked in the fields. We picked a lot of fruit. And I think I missed a lot of school, but I don't know for sure. I left my Indian language behind when my grandma died. I didn't speak the language anymore until um, 
my sisters started to teach the kids. Hearing the girls try to speak their language again made me want to learn again. And I started remembering. I was very surprised she could remember all that from her age, young age that uh, her grandmother had left her. She is worried about who's gonna carry it on then too. But that is one of her, her things is to keep all of this going. See, I'm uncertain about my language and uh, who wants to keep it alive. Just a few. It just uh, seems weird that I am the last one. The world's dominant languages can be like conquering armies. In America, the English language has decimated California's indigenous languages. As recently as 200 years ago, what is now California contained up to 90 distinct languages and 300 dialects, stemming from 20 language families. The state remains one of the most linguistically diverse regions in the world, with one of the highest rates of language loss. Today, only about half of these indigenous languages remain. They are rapidly disappearing with the last generation of fluent speakers. Linguists define those who grew up speaking a language fluently with their parents as first language speakers. This elder generation who were raised in their mother tongue have almost all passed on. Second language speakers, like Karak artist and language teacher Julian Lang, grew up speaking English as his first language. He got serious about learning the Karak language as a teenager and achieved fluency later in life. Today, second language speakers from the Karak tribe, like Julian and Phil Albers, are critical to language revitalization efforts. Even though they grew up speaking the culturally dominant language of English, they have made a choice to return to their native tongue and to learn and then share the traditional knowledge they acquire. Now, as a dedicated Karak language keeper, Julian Lang focuses on teaching, documenting, and preserving as much of the language and culture as he can, while imparting this knowledge to the next generation of the Karak people. We have an old saying that when elders pass away, lots of songs are gone now, like watching all these species of birds dying. We should preserve as many, as many languages and bird species as we can. My name is Julian Lang. I'm a Karuk Indian from the Klamath River. Language is a thing that I was really interested in from early age, like probably about the time that the Beatles came to America. Uh, I was realizing that I am descended from a people that have a history, a language, a land, 
of religion and currently living in a pretty bad place because of, you know, society not really placing any value on a lot of that. I heard all these stories from my family, from my grandmother and all of her generation of people that were all language speakers. And, um, and I heard all of these stories that uh, went back, you know, hundreds of years practically. I decided that that's what I wanted to do, to learn my language, to be able to speak my language. All the language that I knew was like piecemeal here and there and here and there. And I asked my grandmother about it. And she uh, said that she didn't want to teach me the language. She's heard lots of young people speaking the language. They were like, uh, in a way, bastardizing it. And, uh, and it's like they have no respect for it. And like they're laughing, laughing at our language, that our language somehow is so important that she couldn't teach it to me. I kept pestering and pestering. And um, she finally said, OK, well, if you can say goodbye, Pepper. So everybody says, Jimakuya. And she said, that's not right. And then she would say what it was. And I'd have to listen really hard. And then I started hearing, oh, yeah, I hear it now. So I was finally able to pronounce it properly, you know. Chimikuyap had some little anaspirated little vowels in there and stuff. And then uh, Pepper was So I had to be able to say that. Finally, I was able to do that. And then she said, okay, well, I'll teach you that. You know, Native people have gone through this period of oppression, of eradicating culture from their lives, from the lives of the young people and all of that. So since, like, say, the 70s, we've really kind of came on strong. We've slowly kind of, like, reestablished ourselves. But I really feel like, uh, you know, our future is better with language. U e thadishuk pa yupsitanach. U e thadishuk di karo wapa avansak pa yupsitanach um kunishupatamatipa. In 1853, a group of armed white men from Crescent City murdered hundreds of Talawa Daini, including women and children, during the Nidash Earth Renewal Ceremony at the village of Yandakavit, the Talawa Daini place of Genesis. After this massacre and burning, the village lost its traditional name and came to be known as Burnt Ranch, the name it holds today. The Burnt Ranch Massacre was one of the largest massacres of Native American people in American history. But like many aspects of Native American history, this tragic event has been written out of most history books. Over the next few decades, state-sanctioned violence and the spread of disease ultimately took the lives of 95% of the Talawa Daini people. Lauren Bomlin's grandmother 
the Veli Frank, was born in 1875. She survived the murder of her parents by a white man who took her and her siblings as indentured slaves. She lived to witness the federally organized sterilization of Native American women and to experience her grandchildren being taken away to boarding schools. She lived to be 66 years old. She raised a family and passed on the Talawadene language to them, including her grandson, Lauren. Colonialism is a very dark existence for people who are colonized. And to be a subjugant of colonization is tough. Matter of fact, I'm going to write a poem at some point called Isation, because we've had every Isation done to us as a race that can be done in English, I think. <laughs> you know, sterilization, you know, <laughs> colonization, you know, just, it's just a list of Isations. And so that's going to be the title of my poem when I finally write it someday. I've written one recently about one of my great grandmas, one of the massacres that she survived through. And it really was cathartic in a way that I never realized until I got through it. It was very tough to get through it, but then I got through it. And then I actually refer to the isations of being a subjugant population of an overculture as a string of pearls. And I'm not sure why they end up being pearls, but they are, maybe because they're a little more valuable. And they're big pearls. They're like re unreasonably huge. So one of them is genocide. And then one is boarding school. And one of them is, you know, when they came and sterilized their young girls in the 20s so they couldn't have children. And then we were all Christianized in the 30s. And we wear these pearls, consciously or unconsciously, and emotionally and psychologically within our being, our fibers, as subjugated people. The violence of colonization attempted to erase all evidence of the thriving indigenous civilizations that existed across the Americas. European colonists and settlers often portrayed indigenous tribes and communities as disorganized, small bands of primitive people speaking primitive languages. This dehumanizing picture provided justification for brutal repression, acts of theft, genocide, and enslavement against America's first peoples. Though Eurocentric histories distorted or excluded almost all non-white perspectives, against all odds, ancestral transmission of indigenous histories have persisted and are now being verified by modern-day historians and anthropologists. We did the archaeology here, and we go back 10,000 years here. You know, it's kind of like you think, man, our people have been roaming around this shore and up by these hills and rivers and ridge tops for 10,000 years at least. And that's just our houses. That's not even our old archaeology. You know, it's kind of like we lived in a plank redwood house for 10,000 years. That's, like, amazing. You know, like, you think that there's that much tenure in this particular piece of earth. You know, we were here before the pyramids of Giza. Of course, there's been humans everywhere for a long time, but that's not my point. My point is we look to those as civilization. You know, but here's the people who could live with a litigious society and have order and, 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 and live in relationship to the environment for 10,000 years, and it was a verdant, a verdant paradise at the beginning, you know, of America. California's diverse ecosystems were inhabited sustainably by indigenous peoples for at least 12,000 years. As their relationship to the land evolved, 
so did their languages, resulting in more than 90 distinct languages and at least 300 dialects. Colonization of California has irreparably altered both its landscapes and cultures. Today, less than half of these indigenous languages remain, and California is now considered one of the most linguistically endangered places on Earth. Kawaiasu is one of these endangered languages, and Julie Garrado Turner is racing against time to document as much of the language as she can from her father, Luther Garrado, and her aunt, Lucille Garrado Hicks, Kawaiasu's last remaining fluent speakers. La Mesa. Long bus with mm -hmm. Johnny Souza. Mm -hmm. So you went in Bakersfield. Bakersfield yeah. Yeah. Hagre Julie Turner, Nua Nayaganin, Choikish, Cotted Owen Tehestevatan. My name is Julie Turner. My Indian name is Choikish, which is Blue Jay, because I jump around and I'm always running my yip yap. Kawaiasu is our language that we speak, and our traditional territory is in Kern County. We have two remaining fluent speakers, my father, Luther Garado, and his youngest sister, Lucille Garado-Hicks. Hedrick packing them at 3 o'clock, Kalyani, Chippen Quinnam, Kapani, V. Peach, Bus. Fidinam, about 5 o'clock. A lot was lost. Mm -hmm. Yes. What was left after? Our language. Uh, the, uh, you know, when they forcibly moved our family from uh, their traditional homes, which is the mountains of Kern County, and they forced them to live on a Sebastian reservation, which is down in the valley, um, the only thing they retained was their language. I don't even know if my great-grandparents still practiced song and dance. I know they had already given up traditional dress by then. Um, they still were basket weavers. They'd still make those things and still traditional foods that they practices they kept um, and the language and everything else is gone. You so is language the key to revitalizing the culture? Yeah, language is the key. I mean, language and culture go hand in hand. Language is our identity as a native person or an indigenous person, not just native. That's who I am, that's my identity. I might not be a fluent speaker, but I'm native. It really aggravates me when we go to these different events and this archeologist is up there and they're calling me a descendant. It's like, look, dude, I am not a descendant. I am Kawaiasu. I'm a descendant of no one. My ancestors have always been here. My family's always been here. My family's been nowhere else but here.
a revisionist history, seen as the effort to retell and reclaim the story of indigenous peoples in America, is slowly taking place. But indigenous voices in America are still severely underrepresented in all segments of society. This is compounded by the false information that many of these peoples, cultures, and languages are relics of the past, with some believing they no longer exist. While unimaginable harm has been done to these First Nations, they are still here and sharing their histories. While many indigenous people were forced into reservations far from their traditional territories, some tribes, like the Talawa Daini, have been able to remain close to their ancestral homelands, to the places where their language evolved over thousands of years. After leaving home to study linguistics at the University of Oregon, Piawa Bomlin and his growing family returned to the Talawa Daini homeland to be close to his parents Lauren and Lena Bomlin. Now Piawa and his family are dedicating themselves to Talawa Daini language revitalization helping to ensure its existence for future generations. Hello, uh, my name is Pio Bomlin. I come from the village of Neely Chundin. My parents are Lauren and Lena, and my wife, her name's Ruby, and I have three children, and their names are Hune, Sant, Us, and Wasaini. A lot of people use this term language extinction. What's the difference between a sleeping and a dying language? Uh, yeah, uh, so the difference between a sleeping and dying language, I think that's just, um, that's out of respect of, you know, the people who, whose language that comes from. And that's giving an understanding of the history that has set this current situation, you know, where there's not language speakers anymore, where all these languages are quote unquote dying. The people are still here. Yeah, so, so the people who all throughout the United States have gone through genocide and you know, trying to be exterminated, you know, where we were no longer on this earth. And when that didn't work, you know, a cultural genocide has happened and you know, they tried to kill the Indian and save the man. You know, that, that, that famous quote from Carlisle Indian School. So, so part of, a big part of that is our language and being able to express ourselves through our, our lens of who we are. And, you know, a good job has, has been done of that for a lot of people because um, we've, we've had to worry about surviving in this country. So, so calling it a dead language is not giving respect to those people and, and that history. In 1879, an army officer named Richard H. Pratt opened a boarding school for Native American youth in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. 
His goal was to use education to uplift and assimilate Native Americans into mainstream American culture. That year, 147 Lakota, Cheyenne, Kiowa, Pawnee, and Apache arrived at his school. Pratt cut their hair, required them to speak English, and prohibited any displays of tribal traditions, including traditional clothing, dance, or religious ceremonies. His motto was, kill the Indian and save the man. The Carlisle Indian School became a nationwide model. Not only were dozens of private boarding schools established, so too were reservation boarding schools. The ostensible goal of such schools was to teach Native American children the skills necessary to function effectively in white American society. In the name of progress, civilization, and assimilation, these schools stole Native American children away from their families and tribes and sought to strip them of their cultural heritage. Mother to Piowa Bomlin and husband to Lauren Bomlin, medicine woman, educator, and social worker Lena Bomlin is working within her Talawadani community to heal the legacy of trauma caused by these boarding schools. When you take children away from parents, where do they learn parenting? From people in boarding schools who abuse them. So I think that has a big role to play in Indian lives and roles. And so when I went to social work and worked with Indian youth, I saw a lot of that. My name is Lena Baumann. Before I was a Baumann, I was a black. Both sides of my family, both my parents are Masuata, Salmon River, Karuk people. My gift of mothering to Minnie came from my mother. Growing up, my mom was sent to Chamawa Indian School in Salem, and my dad was sent to Sherman. My mom never graduated eighth grade. My parents both had really negative experiences in Indian boarding schools, so they didn't talk about it a lot. But because my mom was so ornery, thank God, she got kicked out of boarding school, moved home, I met my dad, and they were married when she was 15. She was 17 when she had me. So I wouldn't be here if she wouldn't been ornery. My dad worked for the Forest Service, and she was a waitress. So she's a very young mother. She had five kids. And when I turned five, my dad was going to be transferred, and he had a choice to go to Wairika or to Hoopa. And we're related to half the valley in Hoopa, and he knows that it's a really high mortality rate for young Indian people, so he moved to Suarica. And so that's where I grew up, from five and a half to, I was 18 when I went to college. It was a really hard community to grow up in, to be brown. They treated us really bad. When you are raised in a community that lets you know that you're invisible, that you don't matter, that you're unworthy, it does something to your psyche. And my parents' experience was even worse than mine because my mom was sent away, away from her family. When she was at boarding school, her sister was four and she'd get in trouble and they would separate them. My aunt was four years old and she was scrubbing a floor with a scrub brush. And mom went to go help her and she got in trouble. So they kept the family separate. What can a four-year-old do that's gonna scrub a floor with a brush? you know, when they have no family around. 
And dad's experience was so awful. He used to talk about, they made him get up at three o'clock every morning and he got assigned the dairy. So he had to get up and go milk cows and stuff early every morning. And they were always hungry. He talked about how they used to go out and like steal watermelons from the fields because the kids were always hungry. But it was a really horrible experience they had. So that was in their souls. And so what they lost from not being around their families is what's sad to me. You lose so much history. I've traveled many parts of the world and every place I've gone and all the indigenous people we talk to, they all have the same challenges with language, with drugs and alcohol and low self-esteem. And the way the governments that have taken over their countries have treated them, it makes them go through the same kind of experiences that we've had. I love Indian children especially because I was that Indian child who was abused by society in the world I live in. So I was gonna make life better for the Indian kids that I could have an impact on. Like Lena Bomlin, Phil Albers is also deeply familiar with the painful legacy of boarding schools and how they impacted his Karak community and family. In the late 19th century, Phil's grandmother, alongside tens of thousands of Native American children in the United States, was forcibly taken from her home and sent to a boarding school. She returned home years later having been instilled with so much fear and shame that she refused to speak Karak. It took decades for Phil's grandmother to be willing to openly share her language. My family comes from villages along this side of the river. So I grew up my whole life knowing this area, knowing this creek and this part of the river, what these trees are, what these bushes are, and it's still one of my all-time favorite places to come. This is water that I grew up drinking and that my grandmother would only drink this water. She wouldn't drink tap water. For her whole life that I've known her, she, she wouldn't drink tap water from anywhere. It was only this water. Um, and if it was really bad conditions, she would drink Pepsi, <laughs> but, but not water anywhere else. Only the water that came from here or on that side of the river. There's a place that we go on that side of the river where we literally get the water straight out of the ground. That's the best water to ever drink. So my grandmother, she grew up in a tough time. She was shipped off to a boarding school. And, um, and she got really sick and almost died. And her dad went there and took her. He physically walked into the school, said, I'm taking my daughter. And they said, go ahead, because they figured she wasn't gonna make it anyway. Because uh, they wouldn't let the Indians leave once they got there. And he went and took her and brought her home. There was such a severing when when the boarding schools and when the miners came and said, if you talk that, well, we're gonna beat you or we're gonna kill you. That was real. And it, you know, it's always one thing to say that when, or hear that 
when you're sitting on the other side of the screen. But then, when all of a sudden it's your grandma telling you, you don't need to learn this language. It's not gonna do anything but get you hurt. Why, why would you say that? I really like it, Grandma. It's not gonna do anything but get you hurt. I'm not teaching you. So then I go 20 years of my life without actually being taught Kadic language from my grandmother, who's a full-blooded first language Kadic speaker. That was her first language. And then eventually, years and years later, became one of the main contributors to the Kaduk language revitalization effort uh, before she passed away. Once I broke through that tough part with her, because at first she's like, I'm not talking to you. It's not gonna do you any good. And you talk like a baby. <laughs> well, I'm a baby. <laughs> I don't know the language. And I think once she saw that, that I was sticking with it anyway, and that I was actually speaking it, she saw that it was more than just a fad. Then she started to help. Then when she saw that, you know, when she saw that my cousins and my brothers and sisters, that we were all starting to talk together, and trying and asking questions about it, she figured out, okay, they really do want it and it's safe. They're not getting hurt. They're not getting beat. They're not getting threatened. Their lives aren't getting harder because they know this language. So then she started to step forward. Well, this is how I say it. This is how I remember being told. And she shared a lot of that, a lot of that with us once we got older which was good and bad. Phraseology I liked in one of my psych classes at Humboldt State at that time was a model called the empty cultural vessel. And so if you can visualize the human being as an entity that has this opening within it, and when your vessel is full of all kinds of stuff, you don't have as many propensities to hurt things or yourself as much. But when your vessel is not filled, you're continually trying to find a way to fill this void in yourself, your psyche, your being. And so Language, I think, is one of the fillers of the empty vessel. I think ceremony is one of the fillers of the empty vessel, or the emptied. It's not completely empty. Of course, you'd be dead, I suppose. It could be song. It could be prayer. It could be awareness. We have to kind of repack ourselves and replace it with things that are negative or things that are dysfunctional that, to the point that it hurts you. I mean, all of us have dysfunction. I mean, we're humans, for crap's sake. But when you have like a, a vessel that's needing to be filled with something, when you're mechanically cleaned out, to be eviscerated mechanically by a government is a different experience. And then to try to come back from that, and first you gotta sew it up, and then you gotta start filling it up, and then you, and you know, and it's all about choices, it's all about awareness, it's about knowledge, it's about information. 
And then you've got to process that. And then you've got to try to put it in perspective. Then what does it mean to the overculture that we're all a part of, we're all Americans? So it, it's, it's a very complex piece of work. As a child, you know, grinding up under the Bureau of Indian Affairs, I really believed that they owned me. They do what they want with your land, they do what they want with your money, they do what they want with, you, you know, your life. They regulate you to hell, to death, you know, anything and everything. They, they march over you. They're, you know, they're a piece of the colonial machine. And so you develop this really weird view of reality, you know, that you're you're always being controlled and expected to act and behave certain ways because of this colonialism. What I realized is, oh, I'm an American. I can do whatever I want. You know, I mean, I can actually, I can speak Tolo if I want. I can speak Arabic if I want. I can speak English if I want. Because if that's what I want to do and I put my time into it, why not? And I didn't realize that until later in my life. Because up until then, I was just like, like a caged person. Language Keepers is produced in partnership with Advocates for Indigenous California Language Survival. You can experience video introductions and accompanied biographies of the voices you hear at languagekeepers.us. Acknowledging the original indigenous inhabitants of the land you live on is a key step towards healing the legacy of colonization. You can do this by visiting native-land.ca or downloading the Native Land app developed by Native Land Digital. This episode is directed, produced, and edited by Adam Lofton. It's produced and narrated by Emmanuel Vaughn Lee. Original music by Matthew Atticus Berger and H. Scott Salinas. Narration is written by Adam Lofton, Chelsea Steinauer Scudder, and Emmanuel Vaughn Lee. Sound mix and design is by D. Chris Smith. Sound recording is by Ben Solitiano, with additional production support from Devin Talaton. Language Keepers would not have been possible without the collaboration and support of the Talawadeni, Karuk, Wukchumni, and Kawaiasu communities featured in this podcast. Emergence Magazine is an initiative of Kalyapea Foundation. Our original essays, films, in-depth interviews, and rich multimedia explore the threads connecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. You can subscribe to our podcast wherever podcasts are found. To subscribe to our newsletter and check out more of our stories, visit emergencemagazine.org.